Well, what's up, CA students, 678? So glad that you joined us for CA Students Online. My name's Jake, and I'm one of the youth pastors, and I just want to say I'm so glad that you joined us. Whether you've joined us many times or this is your first time, I just want to say welcome to you, and we want you to get connected, a part of the CA Students and 678 family. So glad that you joined us. Hey, we're starting a new series of talks um, at this CA Students Online. I'm so excited. The title of this series is Love Like This. And we're going to be doing a series through the book of the Bible known as First John. First John. The Bible has a ton to say about what true love is, what love looks like. And the Apostle John, who wrote First John, this letter, had a lot to say about it. We're going to dive into the scriptures verse by verse and see what God has to say about his love and about what it means to love him back. I'm so excited. And when we study the Bible, something that's really important is to understand context. Context. What's context, Jake? Well, context, really a definition could be the circumstances that form the setting of a situation or an idea. The circumstances that form the setting. When you're studying the Bible, there are two important types of context to know about. First is literary context, which kind of basically it means that words really have meaning within the context of other words or sentences. So for example, if you told me, Jake, be ready for the ball, depending on the context around that sentence, I'm either going to get some dance shoes on and get ready for a dance ball, or I'm going to duck because a fastball might be coming, right? That literary context matters for me to understand that sentence. Similarly, there's something called historical context, which is what's going on in the time when this document was written, right? An example of a historical context recently, uh, I was playing this game called Fishbowl, where I had to get my teammates to guess one word using a different one word, now, before the game started, there was some historical context that happened. I reached into a bag to grab some clipboards, and I cut myself, cut my finger really bad on some clipboard, on the clipboard. Ouch. Now, I grabbed this card, and the word I had to get my team to guess was clipboard. And so, you know, where usually I would have had to say something like, uh, surface, hard, or something like that, because of the historical context of what just happened with my team and they were all in the room, they watched me get hurt, all I had to say was, ouch, and they were able to guess clipboard. Man, when you have historical context, when you understand it, you can understand the meaning so much better. It's easier to be on the same page. Well, it's important when reading the Bible, the Bible to understand historical context so we can understand the content of what the writers were trying to communicate to that original audience and therefore to us. So let's briefly look at some context of 1 John, this book of the Bible. The author is the disciple, the apostle, the eyewitness to Jesus's life named John, John the Beloved. He was in Jesus's inner circle and later he became this overseer or pastor of these different churches. And this letter, this is not just some theological treatise or something. It's a letter written to a church in a really difficult, painful time. You see, some former members of this church, 
that John was overseeing and pastoring started to believe, to live, and to teach these false beliefs that were just way outside the boundaries of what was truly Christian and lining up with who Jesus objectively was. Things like, Jesus wasn't really the Son of God. His death wasn't really necessary to forgive us from our sins. But they weren't just believing these things and living based on these things. They were trying to get everybody else to believe these things and live out all these different things as well. And this created confusion for the church. The people who were trying to remain loyal to Jesus and to the eyewitness accounts of him were confused. And they were like, hey, am I truly in the truth? Do I truly know God? Am I really God's child? And so John comes in and writes this letter to this church to help, to encourage, to strengthen, and to help them discern truth from falsehood, what God's love is really like, and what it really means to love God. This letter, CA Students in 678, is so exciting, and it calls us back to three basics of the Christian life. Discernment between truth and falsehood. Discernment means knowing the difference between so that's one. Number two, obedience, obedient living, being obedient to Jesus. And number three, passionate devotion to Jesus. I'm so excited to get into this. We're going to start at basically the beginning of chapter three and go through some of the verses of chapter five. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, NIV. What is the literary context so far that we're going to skip to start in about chapter three? John has just reassured his readers that they truly do belong to the truth, belong to the true God, and not to the devil. So he's writing to people who are following Jesus as was passed down from the apostles and God's word. John is about to reaffirm in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, the amazing truth of their spiritual identity as children of God. Then he urges them to strive for the ethical living out actions, ethical in integrity, and a sense of urgency appropriate to their spiritual identity as children of God. So there is some context. There's a church in need of knowing what's true and knowing how to love God. And John writes this letter. Let's, are you ready? I'm so excited. Let's, let's jump in. The end of chapter 2, right before chapter 3, verse 28 of chapter 2 says this. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. People become God's children when they believe in Jesus. John, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. See, students, six, seven, eight, anybody who's watching this, have you decided to put your trust in Jesus, to believe he is who he said he is, and seek to put that belief in action in your life? You're God's child. Maybe you haven't done that yet. You can decide today to put your faith in Jesus, to, to say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sins. You can become God's child today. We also get from this verse that Jesus, 
It's called his second coming. He's literally in future history going to come back and appear before the whole world. And John is saying, hey, followers of Jesus, continue to follow him. You're already God's children, but continue to follow him. Continue to live for him. What if those of us who would call ourselves followers of Christ in between now and when Jesus comes back and appears, we weren't saying, how much could I get away with? What if we were saying, how much like Jesus can I become? Listen, we are saved because of Jesus' work, God's work, and our faith in him, repentance and faith in him, not our good works. And we also see that how we are habitually living our lives so deeply matters. And when Jesus returns, it's going to matter too. Let's go to verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of God. Isn't this fun just going verse by verse through the Bible? Has anyone ever told you, hey, you kind of look like one of your parents or like both of your parents? Children have similarities with their parents. People sometimes tell me I look like my dad or I move like my dad or something like that. In the same way, John's saying that people who are actually God's children are going to imperfectly but sincerely seek to be like their father and will actually start to look more and more like him in terms of their character, love, and integrity. When someone is consistently living in obedience, in love, in truth to Jesus, John is saying, hey, you can be assured that they belong to God and are his children. See how this is calling us to this obedient living. So good. Let's go on to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It seems like John just has to take a second and explode in gratitude for the remarkable expression of God's love for us in making us children of God through Jesus. Literally, the words in the Greek say, from what country is this love? Like, where can you, how could you describe this love? That sinners like us could become children of this holy, perfect, loving creator, Savior God. <laughs> this is amazing, and it's true. It's, it's true news. Come on. How amazing. I love the idea that we get to be God's child. It's how I start my prayer times. Almost every time when I, in the morning when I have my quiet time, I start out my prayer by just saying, God, thank you that I'm your son. Thank you that that means... I belong to you. Thank you that, Lord, you're going to keep me. That, that I'm safe because I'm your son. That you're going to, because your love is an active love that takes action on behalf, I, I can rest assured you're going to take care of me. Thank you that I'm your son. Wow, we get to be children of God. Let's go to that last line of verse 1. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It reminds us that there are just going to be some differences between those who follow Jesus in this life and those who don't. You see, God's family has different values that at times are completely at odds with the world's values. What this means is we shouldn't be so surprised when people don't understand us and reject us since people didn't understand and they rejected Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't get crucified because he just 
was agreeing with everybody all the time. No, sometimes we're going to be misunderstood and rejected, but that comes with being related to our Heavenly Father, to Jesus. Let's go to verse 2 of chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are God's children. We are children of God, and that and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Whoa! John takes it up another level. You think the promise that, we're, that we are God's children is remarkable? He says, now, we are God's children, but what we will be has not even yet been revealed. Being God's child is just the start. What we will be, we don't even know. But we do know that we'll be like Christ, for we will see him as he really is. Can you just put on your imagination cap for a second? And just think for a second. When when Jesus returns, we already are God's children if we put our faith in Christ. But we're going to be more than that. Wow. What does it even mean? Something indescribable. This is an anchor verse. Listen, this passage, it's going to get intense. John's not going to pull any punches. We need to go into this, the rest of this passage knowing the, the promise, the hope, the love of God that we see here. It's beyond imagining, and all our imagining is kind of like a kind of fuzzy watercolor of this beautiful landscape compared to the actual beautiful landscape in real life. Well, when Jesus comes back, he's going to transform us to have resurrected, glorious never going to die again, heaven, earth, bodies. Death truly is not the end. It's just the beginning, life eternal with him. In the midst of the calls to obedience and reminders of truth, we constantly need to be reminded that there's a glorious future ahead for God's children. We'll be even more than his children. We'll be like him. The Christian life, it's going to have troubles. It's going to have hardships, but it's definitely got hope. Let's go to verse 3. All who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. Come on, this is talking about that passionate devotion. It's calling us to passionate devotion. There's something about having this hope for the future that radically impacts our present. There's something about that hope for the future, that future promise, that anticipation that compels us to, to make ourselves ready. It compels us to take actions that prepare us for that day. And to not take actions that would be grieving to Jesus on that day. See, students, six, six, seven, eight, do you have hope for that day when you'll see Jesus face to face? If you don't, ask for it. Get around a community that has it. Talk about it. Watch it transform you. Let's go to verse 4 of chapter 3. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. What's sin, by the way? It's rebellion against a holy God and against his life-giving, life-flourishing way. Our world, it doesn't like to talk about sin. It seems offensive, and our world can try to convince us that sin's no big deal, or that it's not even a thing. That's something that likely the false teachers were saying. See how they want us to have discernment between truth and falsehood? Yes, yet the truth, there's this truth that, that we have this problem, this deep, the greatest problem of sin is the truest diagnosis. And to deny it is kind of like someone with a terrible disease 
being diagnosed by a doctor with that terrible disease and getting mad at the doctor and saying that's offensive to the doctor doesn't make sense. God's revelation is that he is holy and that sin required the ultimate cost to deal with. And that leads us to our next verse, verse 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. There are a lot of calls to obedience in 1 John. And sometimes it can make people like you and me afraid since we know we still sin. This verse reminds us of what God in his true love has done for us, providing assurance and rest. He didn't just excuse sin and say it's no big deal or not a thing. He took the punishment for our sin upon himself so that we would not have to bear it. Hallelujah. Earlier in the letter, at the beginning of chapter 2, John said this, My dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We can have rest. We can have assurance. And again, that Jesus deals with our sin, it doesn't mean like, sweet, let's just go sin because Jesus dealt with it. No, it motivates us to become more like him and to love him more. Let's go to verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Wait, 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 wait. Is this first telling us that we should, you know, if we're children of God, we should be able to never sin? No, it can't. Because in chapter 1 of verse 8, John said that if you claim to be totally without sin, then you're deceiving yourself and the truth isn't in you. So John knows that children of God will sometimes sin still. What John is saying that true children of God will not be living a lifestyle of habitual sin, defiant, unrepentant sin. The habit of their lives will not be constant sin. Sincere children of God will fall into sin sometimes. It's true. It's the reality of our continued brokenness and sin in us and in the world. But sincere children of God will be seeking to live lives of obedience and righteousness as the next verse shows. Verse 7. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. See, this call for discerning between truth and falsehood, it's so important. Because the enemy's business, see students in 6, 7, 8, is deception. He wants to lead you astray from the true Jesus. The claim that one can remain in Christ while continuing to indulge in sinful behavior is one of the things the false teachers were saying, and it's just not true. Again, we're seeing that there's going to be a family resemblance between the father and his daughters and sons. They're going to seek to do right because that's what their dad is like. Verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. See, students, 6, 7, 8, the Bible makes it clear that we're in a spiritual battle with a spiritual enemy whose goal is ultimately to deceive you, lead you into sin, and condemn you. And John doesn't pull any punches here. He makes it clear that there are ultimately only two people you can belong to between them. I want to restate that just because you sin, you're not automatically a child of the devil. This verse, again, is talking about the habitual lifestyle of someone rejecting Jesus as God. And the reason there's any hope for any of us at all is because Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. The devil seeks to turn people aside from doing God's will, causing them to sin so that he may accuse them before God and demand judgment upon them. But by his death, 
Jesus atoned for human sin. When he did that, he removed the basis for the devil's accusation and destroyed his work. Praise God. Verse 9 of chapter 3. We're almost done. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They can't go on sinning because they've been born of God. You'll notice that John writes in a way where he repeats himself to really drive a point home. The false teachers were teaching that sin is really no big deal. John is emphasizing that God's true children are going to show it in their actions and in their behaviors. But I love this verse. It has great hope. Why do God's children not continue to give in to habitual flagrant sin? Because of their awesome willpower? No. It's because they've been born again and God's love and power is at work inside of them. They have been born of God. If you've given your life to Jesus, you can trust Philippians 2.13 for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Lean into that. Say yes to that work of God in you. Come on, he's calling us to obedient living, to passion and devotion to Jesus. Verse 10 of chapter 3, last verse. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Again, John makes it clear that there is a real distinction between people. Listen to this, CA students in 678. Learn to distinguish between truth and falsehood based on God's word, based on the Bible. Our world would say that everyone is basically good, and redemption and salvation, what we all need, comes by just affirming and nurturing the goodness that's already inside of us. That's what the world would say, but it's falsehood. God reveals something totally different. He reveals that we as human beings are in utter desperate need of salvation and that salvation and redemption come through repentance of sin and faith in Christ's death and resurrection that brings about a spiritual rebirth where we become children of God and not children of the enemy. When that spiritual rebirth happens, it's going to be seen in how people live their lives. Here's the main point for the night, CA students in 678, for this CA students online. God's children have an incredible hope for the future, and they look like their father in how they live their lives. But don't forget that there's so much grace for God's kids when they fail because Jesus was the atonement for sin. Whew. CA students, 678. Let's remember those three things this letter is calling us to. True belief, discernment between truth and falsehood, obedient living, and passionate devotion to Jesus. I know I feel encouraged to go after those things after this time of, of being in this passage. I want you to take a second. Which one of those three things do you sense God inviting you to focus on? Discernment between truth and falsehood. How do we get that? Jesus through the Bible to obedience, showing that you love God through your actions. Number three, passionate devotion, passionate commitment in your relationship with Jesus. Take a second to think about that. Maybe you're watching this and you would say, man, I don't know if I've ever given my life to Jesus. I don't know if I've ever put my faith in him. 
and said, I believe he, di- he lived, he died, he rose again. You can do that right now. All you got to do is pray this. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Help me to follow you. Would you, would you let me be born again into your family? In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Welcome to the family of God. Praise Jesus. We are God's children, but what we will be has not yet been made known. Wow. See, students, six, seven, eight. Love is not just anything we want it to be. Love is what God did in Jesus to make it possible for us to become his children. Let's love like this. It's an action. Let's love like this. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this kind of love. Help us to follow you. Put our faith into action. And would you teach us to discern between truth and falsehood? Would you help us be obedient to you? And would you give us a passion for you? In Jesus' name, amen.